0: Is a lot better than your workouts in the gym. So, so thank you for that. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pay for that in the gym with him tomorrow morning. I got a feeling. <laughs> <So, clears throat> well, it's good to see you, Gateway family. As we journey through the Gospel of John, we're in the home stretch now. This is our 53rd of 60 sermons in the Gospel of John. And so, we're in the last seven or eight weeks as we journey through the Gospel. This morning as we begin, I want you to just think about this expression. It was said by Charles Spurgeon. I don't know if you've ever heard it before, but it's a fascinating expression. He said, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. Now think about that. When we get to July in the Alabama summer, unlike what we have today with a beautiful day in the 70s, when we get the 95 degrees and 100% humidity, if I go outside in the middle of that July day and my kids have given me a Play-Doh creation that nice, soft play creation of something, and I go put it on my driveway. Within about 10 minutes, it's going to be baked solid in the sun. It's going to be hard as a rock. The sun is going to harden it. But I can also raid our house and get a decorative candle out and go put it on the driveway as well. Within about 10 to 15 minutes, it'll start melting in the heat. The same sun can harden clay and can also melt the wax. We're going to see something like that in John today, but it has nothing to do with play It and has nothing to do with wax candles. Today, it's going to have to do with people's souls with the spiritual realm. For the last 52 weeks as we've been journeying through the Gospel of John, we have seen the glories of who Jesus is. We have seen, in a sense, the Son of God and all of His brightness and majesty and greatness. And we've seen some people see Him and run to Him, to believe in Him, to lay everything behind them and to go after Him and receive a radical transformation from above. We've also seen some people encounter the very same Jesus, the very same Son of God, see the very same glory and beauty of Him And run the other way. Not just run the other way, but get bitter towards him, desert him, attack him, and even try to kill him. And friends, it's no different today. There's people who encounter the glory of Christ and they run to him and they're changed. And other people encounter the glory of Christ and they run away from him and they do not believe in him. Have you ever considered how something that gives you and I such a life and such joy and such peace and such hope is so offensive and so repulsive to perhaps our neighbor's? our friends, our family members. The same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. Why does that happen? We're going to see some insight today in John chapter 18. So go ahead and find that in your copy of God's Word or on your Bible app on your phone. And while you're finding John 18, just to give us some context of where we are, for the last 15 weeks, we've been on Thursday evening in the life of Jesus. We've had a long Thursday evening, haven't we? So one evening in the life of Jesus, we spent the last 15 weeks on. We've seen Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. We've seen him wash their feet. We've seen him teach them all about what it means to follow him, preparing them for the suffering that was to come. We've seen him praying over them in John 17 and praying for us as well. We've seen Jesus in the garden where he was betrayed, where he was arrested. We saw last week Jesus before Annas, who was the, kind of like a pre-trial hearing in, in Christ's life there. We saw Jesus suffering injustice last week to rescue us. Because just like Peter, we deny Jesus through our sin. All that is happening on Thursday night. So again, the last 15 weeks have all been on Thursday night. Today, we move to Friday. We finally get a new day here in the life of Jesus as we move on in this. What happens next is Jesus goes before Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, John does not record that for us. The other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us about that. John just tells us it happened. John focuses instead on the Roman trial before Pilate. And so we're picking up this morning on the early on the Friday morning. The day, same day Jesus will be crucified on this trial before Pilate, the Roman trial. That's where we are today. And then next week we'll get to his crucifixion and burial. And then Easter Sunday, in God's timing for us, we'll get to the resurrection. So as we come to this Roman trial of Jesus today in John chapter 18, there's two things I want you to listen for as we read this text today. The first one is, what do we learn about who Jesus is? Now, that's a great question to ask any time we read any text in the Scripture. What do we learn about God here? But what do we learn about Jesus and what he came to do? But the second question I want us to see this morning... It's what keeps people from believing? Because as we look at this text today, there is a lot that indicates what blinds people's eyes, what hardens some people, the very thing that kind of melts our hearts before the Lord is his children. What is it that hardens some people when they hear the exact same thing? So what do we learn about who Jesus is and what keeps people from believing? So we're gonna be in John chapter 18. We're gonna start in verse 28 this morning and then read through chapter 19, verse 11, and look at this whole, the whole entirety of his trial before Pilate. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the word of God. If you're visiting, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. and words will also be on the screen for you. John chapter 18, verse number 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, "'Take him yourself and judge him by your own law.' The Jews said to him, "'It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die.'" Verse 33. "'So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' Jesus answered, "'Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me?' Pilate answered, "'Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done?' After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he's made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you once again for your word. God, you've not just recorded to us history. God, you've recorded to us who you are and what it means to believe. God, would you, through the work of your Holy Spirit with us today and in us today, open our eyes to this text, to the truth of this text, and would you transform us for it, Father? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So one main idea I want you to see from John chapter 18 and 19 this morning is this. Jesus came to show us that he is a true king, yet people then and now are blind to it. Jesus came to show us that he is the true king, yet people then and now are blind to it. We're going to see who Jesus is. He's the true king. He is God himself, the one who is over all, who is the creator, who is sovereign over all things, who has the right, the power, and the ability to rule over all things. We're going to see so many people who come face to face with that and are blind to it. In that image of the same sun that melts the wax, hardens the clay, we're going to see so many people hardened in the face of who Jesus is. And friends, what blinds them is the same thing that blinds people today. I pray it will be helpful for us. First of all, the context. Let's make sure we understand what's going on. So go back to verses 28 and 29 so we see the context of where we are in the story in the life of Jesus. Verse 28 of chapter 18. Then they had led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? So what's our setting now, friends? We're now at what's called the governor's headquarters. Some of your Bibles may translate this the praetorium. The praetorium was a specific place for Roman society where the governor would live. And the governor in this particular time was a guy named Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate had been the governor since AD 26. He'd been governor about four years when this situation comes on the scene right here. And what we know from, historian, from historians about Pontius Pilate, we know two things about him. Number one, he was a man who lacked tact. He offended the Jews over and over and over again. And, well, we see him doing that in this account today also. The second thing we know about Pontius Pilate from history as well is that he was a weak man who tried to cover his weakness with kind of pompous declarations, with, with different bloody battles and stuff. He was a man who was weak but tried to hide it. And we, I think, get a sense of that in this text as well, of his weakness. Now, Pontius Pilate would normally not be in Jerusalem where this is taking place. Pontius Pilate lived in Caesarea. That was where his praetorium was, where his headquarters was. But anytime there was going to be a big crowd in Jerusalem, he would leave Caesarea and go back to Jerusalem to make sure he could govern well. So think about football, Saudi, whatever team you like, and the masses come into the city. They bring extra police into whatever team it is, or whatever town it is that you pull for. It's not the same thing here. He normally governed Jerusalem from a distance from Caesarea, but with the, the crowds coming in, For the festival, for the Passover, he felt it was wiser for him to be present, so he had a temporary praetorium, a temporary residence in Jerusalem where he would govern from. And that's where this is taking place, this temporary place that he would use when he'd come to Jerusalem when there were big crowds or a need for him to rule and reign from right there in Jerusalem. Now, the setting of this is on Friday morning, and it was early in the morning. In fact, what's happening here, the Bible says just early in the morning, we know it's about 6 a.m. Now, 6 a.m. is not only the time of Daniel's hard workouts in the gym, 6 a.m. is also the time that the Romans began all their trials because they wanted to get the day started early and get things out of the way. So the fact that Jesus is appearing before Pontius Pilate about 6 a.m. in the morning is not abnormal, not out of the ordinary. This is when most of the trials for the Romans would begin for their first issue, their first case of the day. Now, what unfolds here are some conversations that are recorded for us. As we see the conversation between Jesus and Pilate, we see that Jesus is the true king. As we see the conversation between Pilate and the Jews, we're getting a lot more insight into what blinds people to who Jesus is. So again, I want us to see from John 18 and 19 this morning that Jesus came to show us that he is the true king, yet people then and now are blind to it. So let's start with how Jesus, what Jesus says to Pilate and how he shows us that he is the true king. So back in chapter 18, go to verse number 33 with me. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' Important question and why of what's happened. Jesus has been arrested, and now Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, notice Jesus' answer here. He doesn't answer it. He asks a question in response. Jesus is on trial, but he asks a question about it. He says this verse 34. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Now, what is Jesus doing? Friends, he's not being a smart aleck here. He's not coming back with a question where the question is to be a smart aleck. There's a very good question on this because Pilate asks, are you a king? If the question originates with Pilate, then that means it's a political question. Are you a political king? And the answer is an emphatic no. But if the question is coming from the Jews to have Pilate ask, are you a king? If it's a Messianic king, then the answer is yes. So it makes a big difference here whether the Jews want to know if he's the Messianic king or whether or not Pilate wants to know if he's a political king that is a threat to Rome. And and Jesus brings out that distinction not only in his question, but what happens in the very next verse in verse number 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is is not of this world. If my kingdom were of his world, my servants would have been fighting and I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So yes, Jesus is the king. He is the true king, but he's not the king in the way that Pilate thinks. He's not the king in the way most of the world thinks of kings. He's not a political king. He's not a king with physical armies. He's not a king worried about country borders. He's not a king worried about collecting taxes. He is a the king over all, the king of all kings. He has a spiritual kingdom. And particularly, his spiritual kingdom is about the lives of people. And if you're in a life group this week, you're going to have a lot of fun talking more about what God's kingdom looks like, more than we can do in our time here this morning. And so just be looking for that. Well, Jesus speaks of being a spiritual king and having a spiritual kingdom. And well, this confuses Pilate, who's thinking politically. So look at verse 37. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king? You can almost hear the confusion in his voice. So Jesus answers him. Look at his response in verse 37. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is out of the truth listens to my voice. Friends, Jesus is showing us in this verse and what he says to Pilate that he is the true king, the eternal king, the king who has always been king. Notice he says, for this purpose I have come. That means that Jesus had a plan before he came. That means Jesus was king before he came. Jesus didn't become king when he was a baby who grew up. He was king before there was even time. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's claiming here to be fully God who has eternally been existent with the Father and with the Spirit. But he says, for this purpose, not only I've come, for this purpose, I was born. Jesus is the king who came to earth, not just for happenstance. He came to earth on a mission, and his mission was not political but it was spiritual. He came to establish God's reign in the heart of people. He came to establish God's reign in your heart and my heart and the heart of people from all over the world. And he does so by bearing witness to the truth. As it says here, to bear witness to truth, that means he's telling us and he's showing us the truth. Because remember from John fourteen six, he himself is the truth. And can I remind us that he has the authority and the right to do that? Go down to chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So what does Jesus do in verse 11? He graciously puts Pilate back in his place. And look at what we learn about Jesus. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Things are happening here because Jesus has come for this purpose. Jesus has come on a mission to establish God's reign in the heart of people, to establish a spiritual kingdom. He draws people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to himself. And what's happening with Pilate and everything else is not happenstance because he, the sovereign king, before time even existed, had established a plan to redeem humanity, and he was letting it happen. So Pilate had no authority except what Jesus had already established that he would do. Jesus is showing us here... What he's saying to Pilate, that he is the true king, the true king who has always existed. But people then and people now are blind to it. This text is full of blindness. Pilate was blind to it. The Jewish leaders were blind to who Jesus was. The crowds are blind to who he is. The soldiers are blind to who he is as well. Can I just remind us what they've seen? They have seen Jesus, the Son of God, their creator. They've heard the voice of their creator. Remember what happened in the garden thursday evening when the soldiers come and he says i am and they collapse on the ground because of the voice of their creator they've seen all this but they're blind they reject they still arrest they still try him they still try to crucify him how could they be so blind Well, before we look at what happened in this text i want to show you a verse from second corinthians chapter four we'll put it up on the screen for you But second corinthians chapter four verse three this describes what we're seeing here in john 18 and 19 for even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to only to those who are perishing Friends, the gospel is veiled. Jesus is veiled to them, the Jewish leaders, to the soldiers, to Pilate, to the crowd. But why is it veiled? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the next verse. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. These people, Pilate, the soldiers, the crowds, the Jewish leaders, have the Son of God standing before them. They have their creator standing before them. They have the eternal king who is all glorious standing before them. And they are blind to who he is. Why? Verse 4 here, because the God of this world, that's Satan, that's the enemy, the devil, whatever you want to call him, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He's not blinding people physically, he's blinding people spiritually, he's blinding their minds so they do not see, they do not believe, they do not accept who Christ is. Because this is very sobering to realize there is a very real enemy who's hard at work right now in our lives, in this community, and all over this world, blinding people to who God is. And don't miss that. There's a very real enemy, the God of this world, Satan, as he's described here, who is blinding people in Montgomery, blinding people in our neighborhoods, perhaps even your home, blinding people all around you to who God is. What does he use to blind people? Our text this morning, go back to John 18 19. We see several things that, that the enemy uses, that Satan uses, that he stirs up in people's lives to blind them to who God is. Again, this is why that gospel message for some people melts them in the presence of God and other people hardens them because the God age is age blinding them to things. And I pray as we look at these, this would help us personally. Because friends, as followers of Christ, let's not forget this very real enemy is still out after you and I. He can't steal our souls. He can't steal our salvation. But he can sure work really hard to blind us to seeing God for who he really is and to blind us from seeing how God is at work in our lives. So I pray it'll help us in that. I pray it'll be helpful in community because the reality is since the enemy's trying to blind us, we need one another. That's why we've been focusing on life groups and community and growing in community as a church. We need one another to speak truth in our lives, to help us see the areas where the enemy may be blinding us. But I pray this will also be helpful as we look at these things into our outreach because the reality is you and I all have people we love and care for who are blind to who Jesus is. And I pray as we look at some of these things that the enemy uses to blind them, it'll help us pray more. It'll help us be more burdened for their soul and help us even this Easter season find new motivation to speak of the truth of the gospel with them. So briefly this morning, what does the enemy use to blind people? There's five things in our text this morning I want us to just look at real, real quickly. Don't worry, we're not going to spend a long time on these. But I want us to briefly look at five things that we see as examples of how the enemy blinds. people. I pray it'll be helpful for us personally and in terms of our outreach. The first thing the enemy uses is pride. Pride. We see pride all throughout this text. We see in the life of Pilate. Look at chapter 19, verse 10. So Pilate said to him, Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Can you hear the pride just dripping from his words here? He's claiming authority over the Son of God. He's claiming authority over God. But it's not just him, it's the soldiers as well. Chapter 19, verses 2 and 3. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. They're mocking Jesus in their pride. They Also, don't miss here, they're mocking the Jews as well. They feel like their culture's best, that they're better, they're above him. So they're mocking him and striking him. Pride blinds people. What is Pride. A lot of times we think of it as just thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. I think it's a lot more than that. Pride is making everything about us. It's thinking we're above others, thinking we're better than others, thinking our ways are the best, thinking I've got it all figured out. Ultimately, friends, pride is self-worship. Pride is thinking it's all about me, it's all about my ways, and pride blinds people to who God is. It's a sin that's deep in our hearts. It's a sin from which I'm convinced almost every other sin comes from is the sin that blinded Pilate and blinded the soldiers. And friends, it continues to blind people today. There's so many people who don't think they need God. They think they're self-sufficient, that they're independent. They don't need God. They're self-righteous. I don't need forgiveness. And there's people who feel like they can sit in judgment on God and his ways. How could I serve a God who dot, 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 fill in the blanks or whatever they think God shouldn't do? But friends, how often we can fall into this trap? I know God's word says, I shouldn't fill in the blank yet we go do it anyway, like we saw last week. Every time we sin, we choose to sin, we're denying God just like Peter did. Pride is still something that blinds people to who God is. But that's not the only thing the enemy stirs up in our sinful nature to blind us to who God is. The second thing is disinterest. Disinterest in who God is and what he's doing. We see this in the life of Pilate here, chapter 18, verse number 31. Chapter 18 and 31, Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And then go down to chapter 19. Verse six: When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" Pilate said to them, "Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him." What's Pilate doing in these two verses? He's decided Jesus isn't worth his time. He keeps trying to pass him back to the Jews. Jesus is no threat to Roman rule. He's decided that Jesus is not a political king. He's not a king that's going to upset or, or overrule anything he's up to. So it's not Jesus is not worth his time anymore. So he pushes him back and tries to wipe his hands of him and move him off back to the Jews. He doesn't say Jesus is worth his time. And friends, that still happens today as well. I can't tell you how many times when I've been talking to people about the Lord. Yeah, I know I'll get involved in church one day, Grady, when I get my career established, when my family, when I start having kids, when I, whatever it is, and they're not interested in, in God at the time because they have all these other things they are pursuing after instead. And it's just like Pilate here. God is basically saying, God's not worth my time right now the enemy uses pride to blind people. He uses disinterest to blind people. But there's a third thing he uses, and that's relativism. Doubt about truthfulness. Relativism. Can we really even know what truth is? Look at what Pilate says in verses 37 and 38 of chapter 18 here. Chapter 18, verse 37 and 38. I feel like this is something that you would hear in the academy in the United States today, right? Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Profound declaration from Christ right here to Pilate. And what does Pilate say, verse 38? What is truth? And he ends the conversation there. He's heard his creator claim to ha- be the truth, to speak about what is truth here, what he's come to do. And what Pilate says is cynical. He brushes off what Jesus says with a cynical comment. Shh, how can you know the truth? which is what Greek and Roman thought was at the time. Could truth really be known? Friends, is that any different than what we hear today? How much do we hear today of there is no such thing as absolute truth? What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. There is no such thing. Is no different than what the enemy was stirring up, even back here 2,000 years ago in the time of Pontius Pilate. People say there's no way to really know what's true. Surely everyone's worshiping the same God. I can never follow a God who would and then fill in the blank to whatever you don't like about what the Lord does. The same thing happening here. The doubt, relativism, blinds people. So the enemy blinds people with their pride, with disinterest, with doubt. There's a fourth one here, and that's he blinds people with fear. Look at Pilate in verses seven and eight of chapter nineteen. Chapter nineteen, verse seven. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. And in verse eight, when Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. That means he was already afraid. Now he's even more afraid. Why is this Roman ruler, this powerful man, afraid here? Well, there's not a grievance on why he's afraid. Some people think he's afraid of the Jews, that they might create a revolt. Some people think he's fear of losing power. Some people think he's superstitious fear here. You know, from Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, his wife has a dream. Goes to him and says, don't have anything to do with this man. I had a dream about him. And So perhaps he's superstitiously fearful in this. We don't know, but I think it's a little bit about all those things. I think he's insecure and afraid of the Jews, and I think he's superstitious as well. And so fear blinds him to what Jesus is saying. And friends, that's no different today. How many people have said things like, you know, I would follow Christ, but you know, my family, they, they might cut me off. Or what would my family think? I'm afraid of how my family would respond. Or, you know, students might say, you know, I really know I should sell out for Christ, but how could I do that? My friends are going to think I'm strange, abnormal. I don't want to sell out for the Lord. It would cost me my friendships. People who are afraid of financial loss. You know, if I follow Christ, I might get passed over at work. If I don't do these things, how am I going to get a raise? And so they let fear of finances keep them from the Lord. And friends, though, it hasn't come here yet. There's a place in the world where people legitimately fear death for following Christ. They say, if I follow Christ, my family will literally kill me for this. And the enemy stirs up that fear in people's heart to keep them from selling out and following Christ with their all. So the enemy uses pride, disinterest, doubt, and fear. But there's one last one, I think it's the most sobering of all. And then we can use religion to keep us from Christ. Then we can use religion to keep us from seeing who Jesus really is. That religion can keep people away. Yes, even church involvement today. But notice the religious leaders here. This is so ironic. And John brings out the irony here of how focused they are on keeping some parts of the law, but not others. Go back to chapter 18, verse 28. This is just so interesting here. Chapter 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Do you get what's happening here? For the Jewish people, if they were in the house of a Gentile, of a pagan, for seven days they couldn't do the, the Passover because they'd be ceremonially unclean. These guys who've done all these injustices to Jesus, who didn't care at all about following the law for Jesus, are all of a sudden now like, uh, sorry, Pilate, we can't step past this threshold because we can't take the Passover and celebrate God's goodness in seven days if we walk into your household. I mean, the irony of this, they're willing to break the law to rest Jesus, but they all of a sudden are now so obsessed with the law on this. But they do it again later, chapter 18, verse number 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Why they care about the law. They've just arrested Jesus illegally at night. They've just used a traitor like you're not allowed to do in, Jesus, in Jewish law there. They've already had an illegal trial to try to gather ev- evidence. They've already made him testify against himself, which is illegal. They've done all these illegal things, and all of a sudden now they're being all upright. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. As if they care about the law at this point, but it's expedient for them. Or chapter 19, verse number 7, the Jews answered him, Pilate, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. Do you see the irony in all this? They were focused so on their religious ritual, they were focused on keeping the law when it was expedient for them. They would not go into Pilate's house. They insisted on Jesus' death, but we can't do it. You've got to do it for it. And they don't care that everything else they're doing is illegal. They're trying to preserve their religious ways. Why they want Jesus dead? Because they like their legalism. Why they want Jesus dead? Because he's challenging their pride and their power. Instead, they're willing to break the law where it's convenient for them to try to kill Jesus while trying to outwardly preserve this morality that they're trying to, this, this front, this facade they're trying to put up about how religious they are. They're willing to break their religious ways to get rid of Jesus, so they keep their religious ways. And I you catch the irony of all that. Their religion blinded them. And friends, is that any different today? If you look across the landscape of America and you ask people, are you a Christian? Oh, sure, I'm a Christian. Do you believe in God? Oh yeah, I believe in God. But when you look at their life, there is no radical transformation from above. We've seen in the Gospel of John week after week that if we really believe our lives are different, our lives are changed, and you have all these people who are content with no fruit, no transformation, but they're content with their surface-level church relationships. They're content with the outward appearance of being religious and looking good and moral in the society. And I'm fearful because a lot of people have been convinced that because they walked in I shook a pastor's hand and got wet in the baptismal pool, they're not going to go to hell. And in reality, there is no transformation, no love for Jesus, no desire to make him known, no change in their life, no following him as king. Even today, yes, in Alabama and Montgomery, people's religion can blind them to who Jesus is. Friends, Jesus came to show us that he is a true king, yet people then and now are blind to it. Human nature doesn't change, and the enemy's not very creative. Satan's schemes were the same in the Bible times as they are today. But friends, that'd be sad news except for the fact that God gives us grace. And that's where grace comes into the picture. This whole idea that Jesus came to show us he's the king, if people are then and now are blind to it, drives us back to the fact that's why we so desperately need the grace of God. We need the grace of God to remove those spiritual blinders, to remove the lies that the enemy has put before us so we can see God in all of his beauty and his glory. We need God's grace to draw us to himself, to overcome all that resistance we have in our sinfulness. When we, like Peter, are denying him, when we're shaking our fist at God and saying, God, not your way but mine, we need God's grace to come and to draw us to himself. We need God's grace to breathe into us alive, to take as our dead lives and bring spiritual life into them, to take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh and to breathe new life into us. That is all God's grace when he gives us that type of radical transformation my friends, can I remind us we need grace not just to believe in Jesus one time? We need grace every day to keep believing in Jesus. We need grace every day to keep walking with Jesus. Because the enemy who blinds Pilate, who blinded the soldiers, who blinded the Jewish leaders, who blinded the crowds, is still trying to blind you and me today. The enemy is not like, oh well, I lost them. They believed in Jesus. They prayed the prayer. They're good. I'm done with them. The enemy is still trying to steal, kill, and destroy. Destroy your life destroy your joy, destroy your walk with the Lord, destroy your intimacy with the Lord, destroy your witness for him, destroy your ability to bless others and be encouraged to others. He is still working just as hard like he blinded them in this text to blind us as followers of Christ. And so friends, we need grace every day to recognize when he's trying to blind us with pride, with disinterest, distractions, whatever you want to call it, to blind us with, um, with fear, to blind us with people-pleasing tendencies, to blind us with so, any of these things we've mentioned. He's still trying to blind us. And we need God's grace to remove those blinders, to see what he's doing so that we can walk with God every day. Friends, Jesus came to show us, not just one time, but to show us every day as his children that he is the true king. Jesus came that we might learn to live under him as a true king every day of our lives. And we can be blind to it. Hence, we need the grace of God. So friends, my question for you this morning is have you experienced that grace? Have you experienced a point in time in your life when God's grace flooded your life and the blinders fell off and whatever it was that was blinding you to the gospel, whether it was religion, whether it was fear, whether it was something else, pride, whatever it was, was there a time those blinders fell off and you saw, you understood who Jesus was, you believed, and instead of being like the sun hardening the the clay, you were like wax that melted before him and the blinders fell off. Has that happened? If that really has happened, Are you now experiencing that grace every day? As day by day, the blinders keep falling off, not because you're so holy and you're so smart, but the blinders keep falling off every day because God who justified you is now sanctifying you. The God who saved you is now growing you in holiness and he's showing you blind spots and he's showing you where the enemy is tripping you up and he in his grace is pursuing you as his child as he yearns jealously over you, drawing you close to his side. Friends, have you experienced that? And friends, if you have experienced that, Is he burdening your hearts for those who don't know? One of my prayers for myself and for all of us this Easter season is that God would give us eyes to see people around us where they really are. Because around us, perhaps in our homes, perhaps in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our places of work, people we run into in the community, there are people who are blinded by fear, they're blinded by pride, they're blinded by disinterest, they're blinded by rationalism, and perhaps even blinded by their church membership. And they do not see Christ as a true king who desires their worship and desires to reign and rule over their lives. And I pray in my heart and your hearts over these next weeks, God will give us divine appointments all throughout these weeks to come to be his mouthpiece as ones who've experienced his grace to point others to his grace as well. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do worship you this day. We do praise you because you are the eternal king. God, we're just thankful that you've shown that to us. God, we have nothing to fear Because, God, you're sovereign. You are the ruler. You are reigning. You are the king of kings and the lord of lords. God, in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters, God, would you let us treasure that truth? Would you let us treasure the truth that nothing is happening by chance? But, God, you are on your throne ruling and reigning. And, God, I pray this day that you will let each one of us here at Gateway experience your grace. Not just saving grace that we look back on with fondness, knowing when you let the blinders fall off of our eyes. But, God, would you let us experience grace every day this week? whether we're at work, whether we're driving down Eastern Boulevard, Lord, whether we're at school, whatever it is, God, would you let the blinders keep falling off? Lord, as your followers, if there are areas of our lives where there's sin where we're blinded to how the enemy's tripping us up and keeping us from being all that you want us to be, God, would you in your kindness to us show us that? I was thinking about last week and what we saw earlier in John 18 that because you love Peter so much, you didn't leave him in a sin of denial, but you let that rooster crow. You sovereignly let that rooster crow at just the right time when he denied, that you would break him over his sin. God, would you pursue us in the same way? There's areas to where the enemy has blinded us, to where we're not seeing your greatness. Areas to where we're not believing in all that you say you are. Areas where we have sin that is blinding us, and sin that's entangling us, and keeping us from being, all you want to be as your children, and your ambassadors in this city. Would you this week let those roosters crow in our lives also? Through the work of your Holy Spirit, and your word, and brothers and sisters that you begin to break us some of those things. Let us see those areas that perhaps we don't even see. Areas of sin that may have been with us for years that we don't even think about anymore. But God, in your love for us, would you let those blinders fall off today and this week that we might be found faithful. Lord, I pray as well for myself and these brothers and sisters, God, that this week as Easter's approaching and we have time to meditate and think about the fact that we're forgiven in Christ. We have a new nature. But God, that you remind us there's people all around us do not have the joy of having those blinders removed and of seeing you in your glory and experiencing the joy of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And God, would you burden our hearts for them afresh this week? I know in my own life it's so easy just to go through the motions and to forget about the non-believers you put in my path. But God, help us not do that this week. Help me not do that this week. And God, this week, would you just burn our hearts afresh and even now be putting on our mind people that you want us to be praying for, people you want us to be earnestly talking to about you. And Lord, I pray this week, someone in this room gets the opportunity to see someone go from death to life as you work through them. Lord, you've told us in your word in 2 Corinthians 5 that you have reconciled us to yourself. And Lord, we rejoice in that in this Easter season. We are thankful for that because that's what we're celebrating. But Lord, let's not forget that it goes right on to say that you have made us ministers of reconciliation as you make your appeal through us. But we are your ambassadors. And Lord, we need grace to do it because we can't do it in our own strength. So Lord, this week, would you give us grace? To remember who we are in you. Would you give us grace to celebrate and to worship you for all you are. Grace to see you in your beauty. And grace this week to speak for you to others who need to hear. Not as people have it all figured out, but people who have experienced your grace and want others to be on the same journey as well. Lord, we'll give you all the praise. And Lord, I pray as well if there's anyone in this room, Father, who's never trusted you. Where they're blinded by pride. Where they're blinded by religious practice. Where they're blinded by fear. Perhaps they're just blinded by thinking, the Lord couldn't forgive me for what I've done. Lord, if there's anyone here who's blinded by those things, would you today in your kindness be pursuing them with your radical grace to where those blinders start to fall? The lies of the enemy that have so entangled them would start to just break right now in the name of Jesus, Lord. You'd be drawing them close to yourself. We give you the praise for all you've done, and Lord, we worship you for who you are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?